1: When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler, since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com.
0: Hello and welcome to the stand with Amy Dunsley. Now, on July the 7th, 1980, at 2.40pm, a three-man gang entered the Bank of Ireland in Balladarine, County Roscommon. They were armed and operating under a Republican flag of convenience. They made off with 35,000 punts. They were intercepted by a Garda car during the getaway and Detective Garda John Morley and Garda Henry Byrne were shot dead in the confrontation. Two cars were hijacked by the gang as they attempted to escape McCann and O'Shea were apprehended soon after. The third man got away. It was a shocking case. The murder of guards, always deeply shocking, and it resonated across the country. The deceased men were both natives of Knock in County Mayo, married with young children, and John Morley had been a well-known footballer, Gaelic footballer for Mayo. It was a terrible case, and pretty soon after investigating Gardaí identified the men. And it's a fascinating story. And in The Irish Examiner, their special correspondent, Mick Clifford, one of the best journalists in Ireland, wrote a fascinating piece about it. Mick, thank you very much for joining us. This case is extraordinary. The man that wasn't apprehended was allegedly a man called Pringle. And he went on the run. Tell us what happened next.
2: This thanks for having me. Um, As you say, Eamon, it was a shocking case. It was 1980, 42 years ago. I suppose what makes it topical and what brought me to it, I have looked at this case a number of times over the years and aspects to it. What brought me to it was the death of Peter Pringle on New Year's Eve at 84 years of age. Now, following his death, um, there were some obituaries that described Mr Pringle as a human rights campaigner. Yes, And he certainly had a reputation for that, but here and particularly in the USA, where he was very often a guest of um, organisations that campaign against miscarriages of justice and particularly the death penalty. And it should be pointed out that the three individuals who were charged with this murder were initially sentenced to death in 1980, even though there hadn't been an execution here since 1954, but they were sentenced to death on the basis of a capital murder, which at the time still carried the death penalty. That was commuted to 40 years without parole in yes. prison. Um, as you said, two individuals, Colmoche and Pat McCann, were captured near the scene. The case against them was quite obviously overwhelming. The very soon identified the third man as Peter Pringle in their mind. He was a suspect and he was arrested subsequently 10 days later at a house in Galway. When he was arrested, he had shaved his beard and dyed his hair red. He, he was a man with a, a long hair and, and, and a big beard at the time. He, he was a fisherman uh, by trade and typically looked like what you might call our, our, our image of a fisherman. And, as I say, the three of them were convicted and sentenced to 40 years without parole. Now, in 1992, Mr. Pringle began a legal action. He had always claimed his innocence. And in 1995, the Court of Appeal deemed his conviction to be unsafe. Now, that aim is not exactly the same as a wrongful conviction. It was unsafe. And in that scenario, what would ordinarily happen is the case would go back to be heard again. Yes and that was supposed to what would to be what would happen if it had gone back again, he could just as easily have once again been found guilty, if not likely to have been found guilty. However, there was a catch because this was fifteen years after the initial um interviewing the the robbery and, and the court case and um because and it was murder, fifteen of years course, of the, the murders, murder for two, or two murders yes. yeah um a number of the witnesses were no longer around and crucially, the senior Garda who had signed the detention warrant during Mr Pringle's initial interrogation had died. So the DPP decided on the basis of that and other issues that had arisen that they wouldn't retry Mr Pringle and he was there for free to go. Now, the crucial element in my mind to what happened then, and I should say, That system that allowed for Mr. Pringle to go, and one I would absolutely subscribe to, you know, it's it's a typical system in a liberal democracy. It's based on the idea that it's better for the guilty to go free than for an innocent person to be locked up. So you could say he was a beneficiary of that. You could say he was very lucky. And then, to my mind, was the crucial aspect. Mr. Pringle could have melted back into the population, counted his blessings, and we'd hear no more from him. Instead, he went out in the world, he, he, he married, sorry, he married a woman, Sonny Jacobs, who herself had been on death row in the USA and had been exonerated after 17 years on death row, it's a very long time, but that's typically the American system. But instead of melting back into the population, he went out and portrayed himself as somebody who'd been wrongly convicted, who'd been, a mis- who'd been the victim of a miscarriage of justice, who'd been on death row. In one instance, he suggested to one American audience he'd been on death row for the 15 years he was in prison. So he became something of a star, you might say, in that circuit. Um, and the reality was that he wasn't a miscarriage of justice victim. There was a huge body of evidence to suggest that he had been there, that day, in Balladry.
0: Yes, and we, I want to come to that now. i just say, for our listeners' point of view, the news reports of Peter Pringle's death recently noted that he had been, quote, wrongly convicted, close quote, of murdering two Gardi. He had never been wrongly convicted. We didn't know about how safe or otherwise the conviction was. But the evidence that you've referred to was voluminous. There were a lot of reasons for the guards to believe that he was, in fact, one of the three people who murdered those two guards. Correct. And I just I
2: lay out some of the evidence, Eamon, as I say, because he wasn't captured at the scene, like the other two men, one of whom had been injured in in, in the shooting, but because he wasn't captured, the evidence was circumstantial. Now, there's nothing wrong with circumstantial evidence as long as there's enough of it there, and and that's frequently what leads to a conviction. But just to give you elements of of the evidence that was against him in the original trial. First of all, there was um, sightings of him. There were workmen at a a road in Knock. Uh, which, as you said, ironically, was where the two deceased Gardaí were from, they were natives of, they gave a description that matched that of Peter Pringle in two other cars uh, with two other individuals who matched the descriptions of O'Shea and McCann who had passed their location en route to Balhadarine on the day of the robbery. That was one. Immediately after the confrontation, These robbers, they they, they hijacked two cars and they eventually abandoned them. Now, there was a village nine miles from where they abandoned them called Dunmore. And there were people there who provided details of a man seen in the days after the robbery that matched Peter Pringle's description. The prosecution case was that Pringle had lived rough locally for two days before making his way to Galway. There was a soft drinks bottle retrieved from that village which contained his fingerprints. Yes. There was six wine-coloured wool fabrics matching those from the jumper he was wearing wearing when he was arrested. These were found in one of the getaway cars. Other identical fibres were lifted from one of the hijacked cars from the robbery. There were flecks of paint in the pocket of the jeans he was wearing when arrested which matched other flecks in the back seat of the cars and matched flecks located in the pockets of O'Shea and McCann. There were two grey hairs found in the house where he was arrested, and remember he had dyed his hair by the time he was arrested. Those also matched hairs that were found in one of the cars. And also there had been sightings of the three men together in Galway days before the robbery. Now, um, Pringle has always maintained that he vaguely knew the other two and he hadn't seen them for some time before the robbery. Then there was a clinching piece of evidence, you might call it. While he was in custody, the man whose house he was found in was brought in and in front of Pringle he made a number of admissions about when Pringle had showed up at his house, the kind of condition he was in and anything he may have said to this man about where he had been. Following that, Pringle is reported by the Gardaí to have said to one of them, I know you know I was involved, but on the advice of my solicitor, I'm saying nothing. Now Pringle denies saying that. He suggested, he said, I know you think I was involved, etc. So those all went towards the prosecution case. What happened in 1995 for his appeal, there had been an incident while he was in custody whereby he, he wouldn't give a blood sample, but he had a nosebleed. And one of the guardy, Tom Connolly, he got he gave him a tissue for the nosebleed, and then Connolly took possession of the tissue, and he was he reckoned we could use this to check against Pringle's blood type and that from the scene, which actually, uh, the, the, the Pringle had it had the same blood type. But in any event, ultimately that wasn't used in the prosecution case, and there was a dispute between Tom Connolly and another guard about what exactly they'd done with it. Now, on that basis, the appeal court decided that if that had been brought up in the court at the time, it could have gone towards the guard's credibility and therefore there was an unsafe element to the conviction. I should say that the judges also made a point of noting that they didn't lay any blame at the door of the Gardaí for this and suggested that the the difference of recollection of the two guardie, understandably could be different after 14 years. But as I say, once there was any doubt whatsoever, They decided it was worthy of a retrial. And as I said, that didn't go ahead. And then Pringle um, created, I would suggest, a persona of this victim who was brought around by organisations. And for example, Eamon, there was one incident, there there was an advertisement for a, a, a fundraising among what you might call the great and the good of US uh, society, Judy Collins, the singer, was at it. This was in 2016. On the poster for that, Pringle was advertised as being a man who had spent 15 years on death row. So all of that was a fantasy. So you had a scenario whereby this man, who, it has to be said, all the evidence is that he was there and was involved in the shootout was presenting himself like this, particularly to audiences that did not know the details. Yes. And my issue around that, Eamon, is that there are miscarriages of justice. I've written about enough of them. Yes. And if you have somebody who is not a victim, who's portraying himself that way, you take away credibility from campaigns that are, are pointing out that these things occur.
0: Yes, and one should say O'Shea and McCann were the two men who were convicted and initially sentenced to death, but then that was commuted to 40 years without parole. They were served 33 years and they were released in 2013 following a case taken in the wake of a European court ruling. Neither of them has ever publicly revealed the identity of the third man. Exactly. No. And in addition to that, And people can take what they want to this. The
2: the guard at the centre of Tom Connolly, who, who was somebody who was involved in a lot of murder cases. And also, I have to say, Tom Connolly, one of his last cases in 1994 was to go out and show how his colleagues had got wrong another case That involving a man in in North Dublin, Tax Inspector Jim Livingston, whose wife Grace had been murdered. And Mr Livingston had been arrested for the murder and and was the prime suspect for the Gardee. Connolly reinvestigated that and found that his colleagues had been wrong, that Mr Livingston had nothing to do with that murder. So that's just an illustration that Tom Connolly was not one of these circle the wagons, um, you know, that kind of thing. That, that is an ethic among certain individuals in the Gardaí. I think that yes. shows that he wasn't of that ilk. Now, following, as you said, McCann and O'Shea were released. Following that, Tom Connolly went and sought out McCann. And I, I've actually have a piece in the paper this week, a highly unusual kind of friendship struck up between Connolly and McCann. But Tom Connolly says that early on in that encounter, Pat McCann told him. He said the right three men were in the dock and, and he, right. he made no bones about who the third man was. Now, that's, we only have Tom Connolly's word for that, but yes. I think on the basis of all the evidence that was there, the facts speak for themselves in that regard.
0: Yes, and I mean, the Court of Criminal Appeal ruled that the conflict might have raised a doubt as to the credibility of one of the Gardaíes and that was a conflict about the blood that you've referred to. But what is really, and you're, you're absolutely right to write about it, what is really disturbing is that Pringle went to the USA, talked about his 15 years on death row, married a woman who had actually been on death row, and also soon after his release... Pringle's solicitor wrote to the Minister for Justice asking for an interim compensation payment of 50,000 euro, sorry, 50,000 punts, which was the equivalent of 64,000 euro, to tide over the wronged man until his final settlement could be reached. Yeah. And the figure was referenced by comparison with the payments to the Birmingham Six after their convictions were overturned a few years previously. The application, as you point out in your piece last week, was given short shrift. But it is not just what he did, we think, but how he exploited it and how others, and you know because you were involved, you were the, the journalist that brought a very important case to our notice of Garda corruption a few years ago. Here, you're making the point that Pringle, Benefited and exploited, if you like, the good fortune that he enjoyed. Yeah, and you mentioned the fifty thousand pounds, and I think that's very irrelevant. So,
2: in a scenario, if, if if this man was a victim of miscarriage of justice, and I've done, I've come across other cases, I've worked on other cases where this is the case. I think of one in particular, a man up in County Meath who was a victim, he went to the court, he got his certificate and he subsequently, correctly, entirely correctly, was compensated for being wrongly imprisoned. Now, Pringle, as you say, solicitor wrote and and said, we want this interim payment before we get the full compensation. He was told, clear off, we're not doing anything of the sort. If Mr Pringle was the victim he claims to have been, the obvious thing to do immediately and the correct thing to do immediately would be to launch an action against the state on the basis that he'd been wrongly incarcerated for 15 years. And if so, he would be correctly entitled to huge compensation. But he didn't do that. And he didn't do that until 2018, Yeah, nearly 40 years after the original conviction. And any time he was asked, and I asked him myself yeah, about 10 asked, years you ago... you asked
0: him in 2012, didn't you? Yeah. I said, well, you know, why haven't you brought
2: an action against the state? And he said to me, as I've seen him say in other media, saying, I'm trying to get it into the High Court. Now, Eamon, if anybody's a victim of miscarriage of justice, there'll be no shortage of lawyers lining up to bring a case for them. Yes. There'll be no shortage of judges that would say this is a wrong that immediately needs to be addressed. There's no issue of trying to get it into the High Court. The reality was he didn't bring the action. And I would suggest he didn't bring the action because he would be exposing himself to the possibility that a civil court would come to the conclusion that the Gardaí had not been wrong to target him had, and that the courts under the circumstances had not been wrong to, in, to, to give him the sentence that they did. And that would ruin this persona of innocence he had created for himself. Then in 2018, he'd finally brought a case, this now was 38 years after the initial uh, incident, the, the, the robbery and murders, and the state objected on the basis that an inordinate amount of time had passed and the 115 witnesses who had been around for the original case, would, a, a lot of them would either be dead or incapacitated. And the court ruled cor- that they were correct in that and that there had been an inordinate delay. Now, it went to the Court of Appeal that sent it back to the High Court on a different issue, and that's where it stood when Mr. Pringle died. But the big thing there is he did not follow up by claiming, as an innocent man would, that he was entitled to compensation for having been wrongly imprisoned. In Instead, what he did, in 2012, he wrote a book which he claimed was to set the record straight. And in it, he, he, he basically wrote that Gardi had concocted evidence against him and he had yes. been framed. Now, that was complete and utter distortion of what had happened. He yes. also claimed, by the way, and he had never given an explanation for where he was in the 10 days after the killing. And remember, this was huge news all over the country. The whole country was shocked, these two Gardi. Uh, shot like this, and as you say, John Marley was very well known through his inter-county football, the whole country was shocked. The Gardaí yeah. had launched a manhunt. He claims that he was on the batter that he was drinking for those 10 days and that he hadn't realised until the latter part of it that he was wanted or anything and that that was the explanation for where he had been for the 10 days he was missing. He did not produce any... Evidence of that at the time, or even in his book, he did not produce any witnesses with whom he may have been drinking. Nothing of that nature whatsoever. And to be honest with you, it just sounded like a self-serving account.
1: I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role.
0: Now, you wrote this, Mick, and if I'm not mistaken, you wrote it because from your own experience and all of our experiences, really, who've been working in journalism, there are times when the guards do wrong. There are times when innocent people are put away and have their liberty taken from them. But when you have a case like this and the celebrity element of it that went with going to America... It really makes it harder when there are genuine cases of injustice that genuinely innocent people are trying to prove their innocence. When you have a case like Pringles with all the factors you've mentioned and, you know, what looks like a murderer gets away, then it's damaging to the whole system and it it, it only encourages the police or the guards whether or whatever area that people are charged with bringing wrongdoers to justice, it encourages them to take shortcuts or maybe do worse. Absolutely.
2: And, I mean, I have to say, I mean, like, the man died on New Year's Eve. And, you know, I had written about this at 80%, 90% of what I wrote last week. I had written in different forms over the last 10 years. But, I mean, you, you have an issue when somebody dies. Is it fair thereafter to effectively... him if you want to put it that way as somebody other than what he was and as I say if Peter Pringle had just taken his luck when he got released and did no more then I certainly wouldn't have come to the case I think but because he presented himself that way I felt that the public interest demanded notwithstanding, uh, you know don't speak ill of the dead or whatever I felt the public interest demanded that the record be put straight in that respect particularly As, for example, there had been an obituary in in the Sunday Independent about him that in the first line described him as a human rights campaigner. And recently as well, I just noticed the other day actually, he had done a podcast in 2017 in the USA about wrongful convictions. And that was reposted in the wake of his death. And I listened to that podcast and Eamon it's pure fantasy like wh- yes. what he has told people and people understandably on one level take yes. this at face value but it, it ain't the real story and as you said it takes credibility away from the genuine cases of miscarriages of justice and if you do that you play into a scenario whereby people who make allegations are not being believed the the, the boy cried wolf kind of scenario and I think it's important in that respect notwithstanding Obviously, Mr Pringle uh, has bereaved uh, relatives and what have you, but notwithstanding that, it's important that the facts be put out there uh, to ensure that the record
0: is, is straightened. And that a case like this case of Pringle's, it does give sustenance to guards and others who don't want to see justice done, but do want to make sure they get their man and will plant evidence make evidence up, tell lies, and in other other ways undermine the justice we seek for everybody. Absolutely, and that is a crucial
2: element to it. Um, Because in this instance, and there was no allegations at the time of brutality in custody, but as I say, that podcast I heard Peter Pringle speaking on from 2017, a lot of the detail he gave now sound to me like another case that was involved that books have been written about Yes, and I just wonder whether he had actually lifted it from that and you know it, it, it again as I say it, it takes credibility from the real thing. the other thing it did though was in his book he also tried to smear Tom Connolly he was careful Yes. That was the detective sergeant as he was, subsequently superintendent. He was careful not to name Connolly because presumably he left himself open to an action. But he inferred and he pointed the finger in that direction. And I, I was speaking to Tom Connolly and he certainly got the impression that it was to him that was being referred to. And the contrast as well, I suppose, Eamon, with the other two individuals, because they they committed a horrific crime. Yes. But they ultimately, notwithstanding they didn't serve the full 40 years, they still served 33 years in prison and arguably, and I, I wrote about this when they were released, arguably they had paid their debt fully yes. to society in that respect. And um, as I say, one element of that that was interesting was that Patrick McCann, who actually died six months ago at the age of 74, he had struck up something of a friendship with the, the, one of the guards who had put him away, Tom Connolly. And again, to be fair to... Tom Connolly, that goes to Connolly's character in, again, he, he wasn't out of central casting as the type of Garda yes. who, who, who considers anybody like that to be low life or that he could see, notwithstanding the horrible things that McCann had done, that he, he was a human being ultimately at the end of it.
0: Yeah, and the Pringle was going around meanwhile, again, as you point out in your piece, pretending to be the same as the Birmingham Six or the Guildford Four, and that simply undermines The whole idea of justice. Okay, Mick, it's a fascinating piece you've written for your paper, and thank you very much for joining us to tell us about a case that is the opposite of many cases where injustice is done by the authorities, but in this case, that doesn't appear to be what happened. We're grateful to Mick Clifford, special correspondent of the Irish Examiner, to all of you for listening. That's all we have time for now. We'll talk to you soon.